Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. Today we're starting a new series, which will be coming out weekly from now on, uh, at least the first three weeks of each month. Uh, and uh, it's going to be on ginormous stone circles, such as Stonehenge. That's what's coming up. But first I want to say thank you to everybody who has already written a review for us on iTunes. Thank you to... Matt Langdon of the Hero Construction Company. Thank you to Brendan Myers, author and philosopher. Thank you to Jen Graneman of the uh, Introvert Deer blog. And uh, also our very own uh, Andre Solo of Rogue Priest. Uh, so, so guys, we will get your drawing out to you just as soon as we can produce it. Uh, meanwhile, everybody, you can go and see, you can see Nick and Anna and Andre drawn on the website right now. Um, go to our supporters page, and in the rogues gallery, you will see Anna as a late Renaissance Italian plague doctor. You will see Nick as a Serbian storm wizard called a Zduhach. Leave it to him to ask for something that esoteric, but that was awesome and fun to draw. You can see Andre drawn as a Victorian English balloonist. <laughs> that was a fun one. So you... If you just review us on iTunes, we'll get your portrait drawn just like them. You can request any time period that you want. You can be a Han Dynasty Chinese bureaucrat. You can be a medieval troubadour. You can be a Viking berserker. Whatever you want. Just review us on iTunes and send us a picture that we can uh, work from and what you want to be drawn as, and we will do it for you. Anna and I are both artists, and we'll make you look awesome. All right, enough of that. Let's start our new series on dead ideas. What's our topic for today? It's Stonehenge, Brandon. Yeah, we're talking about ginormous stone circles. Yeah, so we're talking about the idea of basically schlepping a bunch of 4 to 25 ton stones across open country and sticking them in the ground in a ring, thinking that that's a good way to spend your time. No biggie. No biggie. It's the usual, you know, backyard garden project. Just do that in a weekend. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm BT Newber, but you can call me Brandon. With me today is my co-host for the day, Andre Solo. Hey, everybody. And uh, I have to say, when I hit upon the idea of Stonehenge as a topic, I knew, I knew that I had to have Andre on the show. Why? Well, uh, okay, a couple of reasons. First of all, he knows a lot about megaliths. It's, stuff, it's right? really because big, hard, pulsating <laughs> rocks just get me excited. Yeah. When I think of something big and hard, I think of Andre. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the bromance begins. Okay. Uh, so no, but kind of close actually, Andre, because. The Stonehenge people were people who, they didn't do anything small. Let's let's put it that way. And neither, Andre's one of those people too. Andre, <laughs> oh man, you got to meet this guy. Is this, is this your like warm up to, I'm going to have to like roll some stones on some logs through your backyard? Or... <laughs> We're going to have a caber toss. <laughs> yeah. so, so Andre, in, in addition to being a generally awesome guy, is an author, a philosopher, and an adventurer. Who calls themselves an adventurer anymore It's days? literally on my business card. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. He's not kidding. Um, he believes that going on a journey is a powerful way to push your boundaries and discover your purpose in life. And to test his ideas, he is bicycling 8,000 miles across the Americas from Minnesota, where we are here, 
down to Brazil, doing it in legs. And in fact, uh, pretty soon coming up to the next leg of your journeys. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I've done two of the probably four parts so far. So I've gone all the way across the United States from almost from north to south. And then I've gone all the way across Mexico from north to south and left off in the tip of Mexico. So probably this fall I'll be picking up there and then bicycling across Central America. So he's also got a book called uh, Lunasa Days that's out based in part on his journey and was written on the roadside during a thunderstorm. That is true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now I have to imagine the people building Stonehenge during a thunderstorm. Like every time they went to work on it. Isn't every day a thunderstorm in England? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not thunder. Well, true. Okay. Just a, a soft a, a nice storm. A drizzle storm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you can find Lunasa Days on Amazon, or you can read more about his journey at roguepriest.net. Thank you. That's a beautiful introduction. Indeed. All right. So, uh, got everything right? Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, so, I'll, I'll be sending you my lawsuit in the mail. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, my, my, I have a team of lawyers for, for situations just, just like yeah. this. Anyway, okay. So, let's get on with the show, right? So, first we have to talk a little bit about the show concept, because this is for anybody who's new to us, which is pretty much everybody at this point. Um, so we explore dead ideas and practices. In other words, ideas that were once popular, but no more. Um, and But here's the fun thing about dead ideas, is the more you research into the stuff, you find that like there's no such thing as a truly dead idea. It can always just kind of pop back to life. Um, and in fact, that's something that actually happened to me when I was researching this dead idea, the idea of building ginormous stone circles. Andre and I were emailing, and he said, hey, by the way, we should probably explain, you know, address the fact that this is not really a dead idea. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, because I kind of built one. <laughs> Can, what? Can you kind of explain a little bit about that, Andre? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, so uh, first of all, I should I should specify, I didn't build a, a stone circle. Yeah, like not a circle. With, uh, but, Stonehenge, but yeah. I did build a megalith. Um, with some pretty big stones, uh, not not me on my own, as much as I would love to say that I lifted all those stones on my back. But yeah, it was a few years ago. I should give a little bit of uh, personal background. So uh, I am a philosopher, and a big uh, part of my interest is the philosophy of, of religion. Um, and uh, my, my personal belief is uh, I call myself a polytheist. And by polytheist, I mean that, uh, you know, there's been many different gods throughout history that people have worshipped, lots of different religions, traditions, etc., and uh, I'm basically just on board with saying all of those gods are legitimate. You know, it's it could be Muhammad, or sorry, not Muhammad. It could be Allah. It could be the god that uh, you know Christianity follows. It could be Zeus. It could be Jupiter. Any of these gods, they're all viable faces of um, the divine. The divine comes through in many so ways. So how does this get you to building a giant rock? Thing? Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so my uh, polytheism has kind of you know taken different forms over the years. I've done a lot of interfaith work. Um, and uh, years ago, I actually uh, helped found a, uh, a temple uh, of the old Irish gods. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew that, but I still think, wow, whenever I hear <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were asked at one point uh, by this uh, wonderful friend of mine who's of Scottish descent and owns some land in southern Minnesota. Um, her dream was that she had always wanted to have a stone circle on her land. And she said, you know, that sounds like something that's up you guys' alley. Uh, can we build a stone circle? I was like, yeah, we can. <laughs> she asked for a circle? She did. She originally okay. asked for a circle. Um, and uh, we went down and looked at her land. She owns some beautiful like rolling hills in southern Minnesota. Um, and she had a hilltop that she wanted it to be on. 
And her idea was to start off by building um, essentially a dolmen, which we'll talk a little bit more about what that is. But if you just picture um, you know how Stonehenge is made out of trilithons, these two vertical stones with one horizontal stone across the top, mm -hmm. kind of forms a doorway shape. Uh, well, one of those on its own is basically a dolmen. And she said, why don't we start with that? Um, so, so one stone standing upright. Well, two standing... It was actually three, three upright stones with a giant stone on top of them, like capping it. Oh, so a dolmen is a trilithon. Correct. Oh, yes. okay. Got yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're having problems picturing this at home, just picture a giant doorway made out of like three giant stones. Yeah. Yeah. Or 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 like two pieces of macaroni standing upright and you're precariously balancing a third on it. It's like Jenga. <laughs> it's just, it's much more likely to break your leg if you get it wrong. <laughs> so... Uh, we went down and we we did it. We uh, it was I think um, it was challenging. I would say we had it a little bit easier than the ancient stone circle builders did. Um, we did not, uh, or maybe harder in some ways because we didn't have the advantage oh, yeah. of aliens. so much harder. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's harder when you don't have the spaceships helping you. Right, that's right. You know, and yeah. we wanted. I mean, that's the key to any good megalith is like <laughs> alien labor. Yeah, and we wanted to get that, but unfortunately, Trump has built a wall around the atmosphere. <laughs> oh no! And we yeah. can't get any aliens in here. Okay, so he's keeping the aliens out. He now. is. It's also affecting global warming, but that's okay. that's controversial. Yeah. So um, I totally misunderstood that whole political thing. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's really it's not as close to home as you thought. Yeah, okay. Um, right, so anyway, so we, uh, she sourced the stones uh, relatively locally from a, a quarry uh, not far from her farm. Um, we had them delivered by a truck, not uh -huh. a train of logs. Uh -huh. um, and a friend of hers came over with a bobcat, like kind of a bulldozer type thing, and in order to lift the stones and get them to more or less where they needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, but the last part, the, you know, the kind of the crucial part, we had to do the old-fashioned way, which is actually putting the stones up, we did by hand. And we dug holes for them, measured them very carefully because we wanted to have a very specific alignment to line up with the sunrise on one uh -huh. day of the year. And uh, we had to, you know, gen, you know, very, very gently kind of lever these stones into an upright position and then just at the right moment let them slide into the hole uh -huh. uh, where they don't fall back down on the team doing this. How many toes did you lose? We actually kept all of our toes. There was no <laughs> okay. toe sacrifice that day. <laughs> we made a lot of human sacrifice jokes during this. I'm <laughs> glad it stayed in the joke realm. All right. Uh, so yeah, so there's now a dolmen in uh, southern Minnesota, and uh, we said, you know, if you want, we can continue, and, and, you know, kind of, in future efforts, we can build the whole stone circle, and she looked at it and said, you know, actually, this is, this is beautiful, this is what I wanted, so nice. uh, there's now a dolmen in Minnesota. All right, <laughs> so, so you're at phase one of your, of your circle building. Exactly. All right. and, yeah. at, and 500 years from now, someone else will pick up. On and continue to phase two. <laughs> and they'll have a whole different vision that I don't agree with. Yeah. They'll tear things down, that, rebuild. That's the total tradition that that's we're going to get to. That's, that's Stonehenge all the way. <laughs> it's going to be totally different every time somebody starts on it again. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so uh, so let's, talk, let's get into the show. So um, listeners, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're doing this as a, a two-part series with two episodes. Okay? So the first episode that we're doing right now um, is we're going to be talking about uh, the idea of, of building ginormous stone circles like these. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about Stonehenge as our prime example, because we talk about everything. It's just, oh my God, there's so much archaeological detail that you, you just fall into a rabbit hole. I've, Andre, I... I fell into such a rabbit hole just researching Was stone. Was it really rabbits, though? Uh, well, it might have been. It might have been Neolithic sheep, but yes. it was. It was really dark in that hole. It's hard to it see. just. It was just furry. So as like, long as they are warm and soft. So. <laughs> okay. 
Oh my god. So I've got pages and pages of notes here that I'm not even going to use. So, oh, listeners, if this is a little bit of a bumpy road, I apologize, but we're going to get through this together. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so today we're going to be talking about the people. We're going to be focusing especially on the people who built Stonehenge and, and really trying to get into what it was like to be there and why it came into their minds to actually do this. Uh, because, you know, it doesn't come into... I, Apparently, it comes into uh, some people's minds today, but not me. I mean, my wife and I, I mean, we could barely, you know, we can't even cook. And sometimes we can't even just decide what to have dinner. We're just like, screw it. Let's go out to eat. <laughs> Much less to sustained effort on a giant megalith. Oh, man. Okay. So the first episode is going to be about all of that, the people who built it and why. Okay. The second episode, we're going to uh, go into the history of people looking at Stonehenge throughout history and wondering, what the hell is up with that thing? What's it there for? Why did they do that? Because <laughs> there's some pretty good stories from history of different scholars, and there are different kind of theories, some nutty, some less nutty, <laughs> some of them really nutty. <laughs> it's going to be fun. So join us next time for that. But today we're talking about the Neolithic people who got started on Stonehenge. Okay, And, and that's, that's actually what we're delineating as our dead idea, is the actual British tradition uh, of of building these stone circles that eventually right. died out because I mean, nowadays there are, you do have occasional groups who will build a stone circle yep. for whatever reason historical reasons religious reasons but it's not a widespread phenomenon it used to be that they were just building these left and right right basically right and and if anybody out there who's doing this feels like hey I'm in the same tradition as them fine I'm just going to officially legally say fine I acknowledge that we, we support your stone circle we support all of this trip. yes in fact write us in if you are because I would love to hear from you we want a picture though yeah. if you write us in and say oh, I built a stone circle I want a picture yeah 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 definitely we want picture we want proof yes and make sure that there's a, a fuzzy flying saucer in the background please that would be ideal yeah that'd be no perfect Photoshop, right? yeah yeah I mean, I mean, let me see a question Brad. sure so you said we're going to be focusing on the Neolithic people who built this thing. When you say Neolithic, I, I know vaguely what that means, but uh -huh. like how many years ago are we talking is the okay. Neolithic era? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to be picking up in the late Neolithic in the year 3100 BCE. Okay. Okay. So this was before Hitler time traveled back. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. I've read different versions of right. exactly when he time traveled back to. Right. Yeah, and what he did and did not do back then. So I'm just going to ignore all of that. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, 3100 BCE is where we're picking up. And then we're going to kind of follow some phases of Stormhedge up through the uh, early Bronze Age. So, as a shorthand, we can say 5,000 years ago, basically. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much 5,000 years ago, which is a long time. Freaking time, right? Wow. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a pretty good time. Okay. Uh, yeah. So let's go ahead and get into that. Who built these, um, this this monument, monument, right? So we're going to be talking about these Neolithic people. So I'm going to start with sort of a geographic orientation. I actually, and we're going to almost kind of like imagine that we're there, kind of, oh, and perfect. like pretend like we're actually belong to one of these Neolithic villages on the Salisbury Plain, which is where oh, um, Stonehenge is. So um, if you imagine yourself being there, we live on a plain of soft ground. And if you dig deep at all, you start to hit this layer of white chalk, kind of gleaming white chalk. It's actually part of something called the Southern England Chalk Formation, um, which is a kind of limestone and calcium carbonate um, a, 
formation um, from accumulated calcite shells from microorganisms. Uh, and this happened like under the sea and then was raised up by geological forces about the same time that the Alps were coming up. And the Neolithic people were aware that that's what caused the chalk because they came from Atlantis, which had a pretty advanced geologic understanding. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So, so let's get yeah, let's get this out of the way. So, first of all, we can agree it was aliens, <laughs> right. right? But but we and the Atlanteans had yeah, a hand in it exactly, and then also druids, right? There's a three way. Yeah. yeah. So this is kind of like the bump set spike of of Stonehenge here. Kind of like aliens set it up, goes over to the Atlanteans for the assist. And then the spike comes from the druids, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's why Stonehenge can actually cure cancer. <laughs> yeah, right. It's kind of its secret, secret sauce. Yeah. 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 No, actually, that's a that's a good segue there. Just a little aside here, Andre was Stonehenge built by druids? No. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so that's that's a really great question. Everybody thinks that Stonehenge was built by the druids. It's a druid thing. In fact, I even just you know before we did this show. I took some time to just Google Stonehenge, and the first like three results I got was like druids, 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 druids. You know, so there is literally no way that the druids built Stonehenge, and and I'm not just saying because it sounds crazy. It doesn't actually sound that crazy. Yeah, you could even be the kind of person who believes that aliens did build Stonehenge, and you can still agree with me that druids were not involved simply because Stonehenge was built long before the first druids ever existed. Yeah, and yeah. Now, when we say druids, this is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but um. It's kind of a catch-all term for the priestly class of several different cultures that we kind of broadly refer to as the Celtic cultures. Right. And so, they came more in the Iron Age, They right? were an Iron Age civilization. Yeah. So I would say maybe 700 BCE is the earliest you could really say that there was like a Celtic culture. Yeah. And that would be the origin of the Druids as a priestly class. Mm -hmm. um, and you could, you could make an argument that the traditions that they hold on to or even that etymology of the name druid might might go back to earlier stuff but even then you're only getting back a few centuries maybe and you're, mm. and you're kind of heading back to the middle east at that point because the people who became the celts migrated into europe after the bronze age they weren't even in britain they weren't the even in yeah. even their ancestors weren't in yeah. england or anywhere around there yeah. when stonehenge was built so All if right. the stonehenge was started around 5100 sorry around 3100 bce you're talking possibly 2,000 or more years before the first druid ever laid eyes on it. Okay. So that's the official slapdown, people. Right. There's, there's no, no, druids and, and Stonehenge are forever divorced from here on out. Well, so that's the funny thing, uh, is I'm going to put a footnote on that, that they are not quite divorced. They're sort of like dating. Oh, yeah. Because we do know that later on, when you know 2,000 years had gone by and eventually the Celts showed up and they had these druids with them, we do know that they used the stone circles that had been left yes. there from previous civilizations. Yeah. And we have clear records of that in Ireland, of the stone circles being used both for uh, ritual, like religious reasons, mm -hmm. and also for um, huge festivals, which right. may have been both religious and political in nature. But in both cases, their own rituals and, and festivals, not the continu continuation not of what was done there before. The yeah. 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 And what's really fascinating is that to the extent that you want to believe, mm -hmm. this is controversial on its own, but to, as much as you may want to believe that uh, Merlin is based on some guy who <laughs> may have actually lived, uh, he may have actually been kind of the druid who was in charge of Stonehenge. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some really great speculation on his early life based on some, or sorry, on his life based on some early Welsh sources um, and some like early medieval sources that talk about, you know, Merlin and stuff other than just Arthur, but like what else he did okay. in his life. Okay. And they use, if I'm remembering this correctly, they use a title for him that is believed to be referring to the guy who's in charge of Stonehenge. 
So he okay. may have actually, oh. he or the other druid. I'm going to stop saying Merlin because okay. he is probably a made-up guy. Yeah. But the people <laughs> of that time, the druids of that time, uh-huh. uh, to whatever extent they were still alive in the late pagan, early Christian period, uh-huh. um, seem to have known that there was astronomical alignments at Stonehenge and how uh-huh. to use it to right. you know do astronomical stuff. Okay. But they did not build it. There's no way they built it. They just kind of inherited what was left of it. So they really, the Druids got sloppy seconds. Okay. Is yeah. what <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, nice. Yeah. We're going to hear more about uh, Druids and Merlin in the in the part two of this series. Is there later. more Merlin, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, oh, yeah. It's yeah. coming, folks. Okay, not this episode, but next one. Okay, so geographic orientation. We're on the Salisbury Plain. Okay, to the east is what's eventually going to become London, but that's not even founded yet. It's just more villages over there, right? Okay, to the west is a place by the sea that we now call Cornwall. And we actually get a lot of our stone axes uh, from there because we trade with the people over there. We also get a lot of our corn there. <laughs> actually, that comes from the New World. Oh, no, the timelines are converging. Ah. Okay. So anyway, yeah. No, mad props to those people over in that village, though, because what they do is is they mine the flint down into the earth in these kind of very uh, fragile chalk mines using um, bone and antler picks. And these mines... Wait, 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 wait. Describe to me an antler pick. <laughs> I just... Like a pointy bit of antler that I'm figuring I'm I'm like carving into the wall with. So if I'm picturing this right, you're saying that they caught deer, hunted deer, took the antlers off the deer, and that was their, their digging tool? Um, yeah, according to Aubrey Burrow, at least that's what I read it in. I believe that. I've heard that too. It's just yeah. I... I mean, thank God for metal, you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is pre-metal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, the, these shafts uh, are so fragile that you can't even use them for more than one season because the frost from the winter will make them so uh, in danger of collapsing that you don't even want to go down there. So um, would there always be like one guy who just re- really needed some minerals? He's like, well, I, I yeah, I, yeah, I'm going to venture Maybe. down into this one that might not be sturdy. They did find a little girl who was actually trapped down there once. Oh. And, yeah. Like in but, modern times or like no, a body no. from ancient no, times? No, a body from ancient times. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really sad. Yeah. Should okay. So that's to the West. Uh, to the south of south of us is a place with these strange white cliffs, not the white cliffs of Dover. Yes, they are. Um, and then a great channel of water, and beyond that, an even vaster land. Uh, but we even trade with people over there. I mean, you think of the Stonehenge, you think just totally isolated. But no, actually, we were trading with people as far as the uh, Alps in Italy, because we were getting these jadeite axes from them. Wow. Um, and I don't know if people from our village are traveling that far and coming back, or if we're right. just getting it handed from one it's person to the next until it eventually route. gets to us. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so there's actually a decent amount of trade going on here. Just just to put this in, in kind of to picture it, do we have horses? Not yet. We don't have horses? I don't think so. So we're hauling stuff in like baskets on our back. Yeah. People are walking from the Alps to like drop off an axe. We're giving them some antlers in exchange. Yeah, that's my impression. Okay. Uh, archaeologists write in and correct me. Perfect. But... Um, Okay, to the northwest of us are, is a mountainous area that we now call Wales, and the people there are the keepers of the blue stones, which is going to be important later in the story of Stonehenge here. Um, so remember the mountains of Wales and the blue stones. Uh, so here we are on our plane, and we have a problem here. We've got a big we, problem. We have several problems because there's no penicillin for starters. <laughs> also, no metal. We're using freaking antler picks. Yeah, we're antlering this place up. Yeah. Okay, what's our big problem? Okay, our big problem is the land is failing. The oh. land is becoming infertile, becoming oh, worse and worse for our farming 
in our grazing. Oh, that is a big problem. Yeah, that's a big problem when you're a Neolithic uh, people. Yeah. Um, Have we considered not, cannibalism? I think that's coming soon. <laughs> no, I don't horizon. know. I don't know. I, I haven't read any evidence of that, but I wouldn't put it, you know. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, uh, Andre, I'm going to actually let you kind of choose a, a position within this little village society Chief. that we have. <laughs> Chief is, I knew you were going to say that. Chief is off the table because we actually ambition. don't have chiefs yet here. We've oh, got more right. like just um, big men. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a social structure here. Uh, more or less egalitarian village level stuff, but mm -hmm. instead of having like a official leader, you might have people of influence called big men Got it. or big women, right? Were there both? And Were there both? I I don't know, but I I hope so. And was it considered flattering to be called a big woman? It's like probably, a title of respect. I I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I Got hope it. probably not. <laughs> a, a grand woman. Let's call them grand women. Grand. <laughs> No, but <laughs> you're really just digging it deep. If you imagine like Walking Dead, right, where the move this the series Walking Dead, where zombies are everywhere, right, and society's collapsed. Uh, Rick Grimes is not like their official king or chief, but like he's kind of their default leader because they look to him because he's he's some, anyone who can lead, right? right. Um, so that'd be in my mind an example of a big man. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you can be either a farmer yeah. or a herder. Oh, I like this. Which do you choose? I, I know nothing about... I don't know what's behind either of these two doors. Yeah. I don't know which is the good answer, but yeah. I do know that the land for farming is failing. So I'm going to choose to follow animals around and be a herder. Well, sucks to be you because it's also failing for grazing. Oh! <laughs> yeah. Okay, but herder. Okay. All right. So as a herder, um, so the animals that you herd are cattle, sheep, and in rare cases, maybe pigs. Um, but right. cattle are the most important. Um, to our culture, but recently, because the land has, has has been getting basically pretty shitty for for cattle, you've gotten more and more sheep going. So that's becoming your your new big thing. Can we feed the sheep to the cattle? Uh, why didn't we think of that? We before? should have been in charge. We would have been big men if we were oh, yeah, that. Yeah, we would have yeah. been big men. Okay, yeah. All right. Um, you you do ha we do have dogs, which you oh. may at this time even possibly have been using for actual shepherding. Yes. Um, so I just not, outsourced my job. I'm yeah. just I'm like kicking back. Yeah. You're just you just got a pan flute going and or maybe something made out of an antler bone. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. Um you've got dogs. Um you also have a transhumance kind of practice where you're you're leading your flocks to different grazing areas seasonally, summer and winter, back and forth. Okay. Um but like I said, you've got a problem. Your land is uh, has is being overgrazed and it's becoming um, less and less productive. Um, and that's one of the reasons, as I said, why you're, you're now you're moving into the sheep business more. Right. Yeah. Okay. Can we take over our neighbor's land? I mean, were the, I guess, which is my question is like, did they start having wars over territory at this point? Well, well, that's interesting because the two sources that I read for this were a guy named Rodney Castleton and a guy named Aubrey Burrell. And they both wrote in 1987 and they both titled their book, The Stonehenge People, but they're totally different. <laughs> if you read Castleton... It sounds like, oh, it was this wonderful time where everybody was peaceful and they like, didn't really have any large-scale violence of any kind. But then if you read Aubrey Burrell, it's like freaking Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, this is a lot less gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to say in times of strife, human nature is human nature and right. there's going to be violence. Okay. Yeah, so I'm betting that there's going to be like um, Mad Max style, you know, villagers coming from 
you know, another place over the hill. There's a tanker truck that's full of sheep. We've got to get this through. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, so you're the harder. I'll be the farmer then. Okay. Right. So for me, I'm raising emmer wheat and barley, other kinds of wheat. I've got flax going on. Um, and the flax may possibly at this time have been used to kind of make some linen clothing in Ooh. addition to our animal skin kind of clothing. Uh, but not sure. Might have been later that we were doing spinning. Depends on who you read about this. Um, and when I say animal skin clothing, don't think like uh, kind of like hooting, grunting cavemen with this kind of like dirty, nasty, lousy fur strung strung over them. It's more like um, you think like Native American tribes uh, with like a nice, clean, well well made kind of leather. Okay. Kind of so like leather jackets, leather leather trousers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tunics. Yeah. Got it. Uh, that, that's what I'm. That's what I'm imagining. Probably with some great fur trim on top of it. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I use an ard to do my plowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you use a what? An ard. Is this built out of antlers? A r d. Maybe. Uh, I don't. Probably not. It might be a little bit too fragile. But basically, what an ard is, it's like a plow, but instead of having the kind of like cow catcher front, like the front of a train on the front, to kind of have the dirt flow to either side of it. Okay. Instead, it's really just kind of like a, a bone or wood spike that okay. you actually kind of break up the ground with a hoeing action. Is it like one spike or like a comb, essentially? Like, like a one bunch of big spikes. spike is oh, what, okay. I, what I saw wow. by like image searching. Oh, um, God. Yeah, so it's sucks. pretty, yeah, it's pretty back-breaking work compared to you who's like up on the hills and with <laughs> right. your panpipe or Training whatever. Training a dog to do yeah. my, my dirty yeah. work. I don't know me. if panpipes were ever in Britain. Don't quote me on that. I, I will say they had some great uh, flutes and pipes that were carved out of bones. You okay. Were, you right, right on that earlier. All right. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Okay. Um, yeah. So so that's that's my shtick. And, and as I said, um, the land has been overworked and uh, that requires me to um, clear more and more forests for more land because the other stuff is getting sucky. Um, and then, of course, some of that goes to you guys to graze your your sheep and cattle. And once it get once you graze on it at this time and point in history, it's really hard to kind of bring it back to um, good tilling ground. Sure. So that incentivizes me to clear even more forest for for a new farming. And there was a point at which all of this place that we're in was basically wooded, and now it's like nothing. Okay, Basically. so this is a great, I want to do a little like offshoot on this, because yeah. this is great that you said this. So there's this really common belief that the people of the pre-Christian era in Europe uh -huh. were like totally in harmony with nature. In tune with nature. Yeah. No, They're no, not. they They're were not. not. And I will say they had a great respect for it. Like virtually yeah. all of the deities that we know about from the yeah. pre-Christian era in Europe were nature deities of some kind. So they, they did like nature. Yeah. But they did not do well with nature. Yeah. They respected nature. They respected it and possibly feared it at times. But the idea of them being like in perfect tune and, and balance with nature, I think maybe comes from the idea of, of looking at today's sort of remaining hunter-gatherer societies that often do have cultures that are in a sort of um, equitable balance where they don't right. outstrip their resources. But that's because they got pushed into the shittiest areas where you can't grow anything. And the only way they could ever survive was by developing a culture that was, you know, in tune with harmony right. enough that they, they could continue. Yeah. yeah. Everywhere else, I mean, human nature is human nature. If you have a resource, you're going to exploit it. Right. And yeah. 
and agriculture is a big part of that. I mean, that's the yeah. thing with, with hunter-gathering societies, you tend to have smaller numbers of people yeah. ranging over a bigger area. So if you just tear down 50 trees to build your hut, it doesn't matter because yeah. you're going to go 100 miles before you run out of trees. Yeah, yeah. But uh, with agriculture, it's, it takes a toll on the land, and they weren't good at agriculture back then. Mm -hmm. Anybody out there has seen the launches of the first few SpaceX shuttles? <laughs> the first like couple they tried, they, they launch it, it's taken <laughs> off from the pad, and then bam, this big fiery explosion. Yeah. And all early inventions, including agriculture, go about that way. That was Neolithic agriculture. That was the SpaceX of agriculture. Yeah, that was the wah-wah of yeah. agriculture. <laughs> and a fun little note is actually this has been like um, immortalized. Actually, uh -huh. this is time period we're talking about where, you know, land was growing scarce, there was nothing to eat, and they're cutting down the last trees. This has been immortalized in some of the early Irish uh, literature. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a whole story about, which I will cut very short. Basically, <laughs> it's about the goddess Telchu, who is a uh, fertility goddess okay. and the mother of one of the mo most important gods in the pantheon of Irish deities. Mm -hmm. And um, there's basically the story says that like, they needed more places to plant their crops in order to feed everybody. The gods needed more places to plant their crops because they're going to starve otherwise. Okay. And so they had to cut down this forest. And Telchu, who is the goddess of this forest, uh -huh. volunteers. And she kind of clears the land so that they can use it for agriculture. And then she dies. Like, literally, this oh. goddess cleared her own forest. And since she was the goddess of the forest, when the last tree is gone, she dies. It's like she sacrificed herself? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And then every year they had a festival commemorating her sacrifice, and that wow. was their harvest festival for, you know, all the, the wheat and stuff they bring in. Yeah. So this, these times are immortalized as, like, we fucked up all the land, we, we have nowhere to plant <laughs> our crops, we have no trees left, help us, dear gods. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we gotta, we gotta get moving on, but there's one more important thing that I do want to say about how our society functions, because I always try to, like, bring... History is inherently biased toward men, because that's how history frickin' is, right? It gets writ but written by men, and yeah, okay, just overall apology there, but at least I want to do at least a nod toward the position of women, right? Um, it is more or less egalitarian, as I said, um, and so you can imagine that in a society like that, any, everybody is going to have more say, um, and so women may have had, you know, certain amount of say in the villages. That's speculation on my right. part, but it seems to make sense to me. Yeah. Might have even had some big women here and there, you know? Probably, I mean, I agree with the, everything I've read supports the idea that it was more egalitarian than later, yeah. more hierarchical societies, yeah. but probably with strong gender roles. Yeah, yeah you know, I For the think most so. part, women were still the homekeepers at that time. It period. probably wasn't the sort of golden age of, like, matriarchal prehistory that sometimes gets bandied around, and right. I know that there's people that really want that to be true, but it just hasn't really born out in the yeah, evidence there's zero so far evidence and, for a prehistoric matriarchy. Yeah, so yeah. just just blanket apology about all that and we're just we're going to leave it there. Maybe women had a, a considerable amount of say. Um I hope they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, so let's move on. Okay. So the last thing we got to talk about here is a little bit about our religious ideas because this is what's going to become really really important to the Stonehenge people that we have or the Stonehenge idea that we come up with here. So um there's a lot of focus on death. And part of that is just the fact that the things that they built about death are what they are able to survive, like a freaking stone monument. But but they still had a lot of focus on death when they built, were building. Um, before this, there was a long tradition of building huge barrows, which are like mounds, right, where you interred um, the dead, right? And, and uh, there's a lot of focus on death. And with our culture, um, we even have like multiple funerary rituals. Um, one, uh, when the person first dies, we're going to basically inter them in a special place where they're allowed to kind of 
um, rot to some extent. Right. Um, and then after that, we get them out of that that kind of charnel house or whatever you would want to call it. They're just it. on loan to this place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. We, we take them out of that that museum, right? <laughs> Recall them. And, and then we're going to cremate them. And there's even some um, interesting stuff we do, maybe about like fear of the ghosts or things, Ooh. where we um, uh, you often find like their hands and forearms lopped off Ooh. and like buried underneath them, um, skulls beaten in, and then oh, bones right. cremated as well. And the implication is the skull was beaten in after death? Yes, I think wow. this, that, that's the way Burl describes it, is that it's part of the second funerary ritual wow. where you're going to do all this and then bury them. So, um, wait, so you've, you've let them decompose, yep. you've burned them, yep. you've lopped off hands and bashed in skulls, and yep. now the, what's left of the bashed up ashes you yep. throw into a burial. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah, that's my understanding of that it. That is going in my will. Yeah. There's a bunch of other things, of course, in our religion. you got fertility. They find these um, little chalk balls, and... and Burl actually uh, suspects that these might represent testicles. So, in addition to our to our our, our ard plow and and your antler flute, you can imagine carrying around little chalk testicles in your pocket. <laughs> so, there's an image for you. Um, and as astronomy is is got to be here because you know pretty soon we're going to see some major astronomical alignments showing up in the Stonehenge structure. Uh, at some point, we have to be doing these measurements and figuring this stuff out. So it's got to be somewhere in our culture here. So this is a pretty fair inference, I think. The last thing that I need to talk about is something called a causewayed enclosure. A causewayed enclosure, which is a kind of um, rich area. I don't want to call it too much a ritual area just yet. That's one of its functions, but not its only function. An area that's enclosed by a raised earth bank with one to four rings of ditches outside of it. Great. So you can almost imagine kind of like a medieval castle right. with the wall being just earth in this case. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily that tall, but you know, a barrier. And then almost like the medieval moat around it outside. Right. Kind of like you can imagine it being functional as, as protective. Yeah, Although because it would be very a very good defensive position. Yeah, except in some cases it seems like, why wouldn't you have dug it deeper or things if you really wanted to <laughs> well you're so doing sometimes this with they antler think, shovels so. yeah well yeah <laughs> so it could have been like spiritual defense right and other things and we use this for all kinds of purposes they think like a community center um festival gathering place in addition to like burial places um after this whole uh, with all these funeral rituals mm. and we eventually bury them there um so it's kind of like our one-stop shop and our gathering place so like as a village we would have one of these and and this would be like our tribal identity is all wrapped up in this causeway enclosure. Yeah. And the one near us, um, we now call Robin Hood's Ball. There is a causeway enclosure there that has been used for about a thousand years. But right now, it's kind of coming to the end of its use. We're kind of mm. bored with it <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Right. Um, or we just have a hard time like keeping up the causeway enclosure when we can't even feed ourselves. Yeah, maybe we just yeah we just can't spare it. Well, right. I, we're coming we're kind of coming out of that part right now. Okay. Uh, uh, but we've had a traumatic several centuries in terms of land failure. Wow, yeah. which is a long time yeah. if you think about a Neolithic society because it's not like you can Wikipedia like oh yeah well this famine started in 1971. Yeah. It's like everybody your father your grandfather his grandfather everybody as far back as you remember has grown up with like failing agriculture. And somewhere in the mists of time, they can talk about when the land was fertile and rich. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, like, it's way back there in the dream time. Right, know, yeah. Right? 
Um, yeah, and, and, and we're not talking about, oh, we don't have enough lentils or, or something that we, we can't get from the co-op anymore. Right. You know, we're talking like in the winter we freaking starve because our, right. our greeneries are, are depleted. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, okay, so we're, we're facing this, this crisis, kind of pulling out of it, but we're still just totally traumatized, right? Um, and uh, at this point... I want to like drop into like an actual like narrative moment here in this village. I want to imagine like it's the point where somebody finally stands up and suggests let's build a Stonehenge, right? <laughs> I have to imagine this like some let's kind of like a monorail. <laughs> like, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes. like the Springfield monorail, right? right yeah. Which which was riffing off of the Sound of Music. Um, right. where, but this is like in the the show The Simpsons, where this guy comes to town and and convinces everybody with with a very compelling song, mind you, that they should build a monorail for what who knows what reason. Do you think there was a Stonehenge song that convinced I, everyone? I really hope I there hope was. So. Yeah. I hope there was. It was a bit, and they were big on songs and stories back then. There probably <laughs> yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. So I have to imagine some kind of meeting where somebody stands up and says, "Hey, uh, our causeway enclosure tradition, this ancestral thing." Hasn't been doing it for us, guys, right? <laughs> we keep starving winter after winter. We need to think about the future and get something new going here, right? Right. And he, and this, okay, this monorail salesman, right, <laughs> is like, I have seen other villages <laughs> that are doing this other thing, and it's called a hinge. Ooh. And a hinge, in its technical definition that archaeologists use, is like a causewayed enclosure, but instead of having a bank with ditches around it, you have a bank with ditches with a ditch inside it. Oh. So the, it's reversed. Right. So there's no longer any possibility that it could be functional defense. as as actual physical defense against right. violence. It it's it's reversed. And I don't. I, we don't know quite why they did this. That's such a small change, but like so significant. Yeah. Yeah. But, and you know it could be who knows how they justified it right but it could be as little as ju as as little as just being a major cultural statement of a break with tradition hmm. it's still kind of continuing it's a lot like a causeway enclosure but it's like this is our new thing right, right. now right now, like was, it's almost was there like any kind of like migration of new people into the area or is this just like the same people and suddenly they're like let's do this not in any of the sources that i read wow um and i see this as like almost turning your hat around backwards <laughs> because like that the bill on your hat has a function right it keeps the eyes your sun out of your eyes right you put it around backwards it's not doing anything for you anymore it's just looking but cool. it's make you're, you're making a statement yeah right that you're part of a different crowd right yeah so so we're turning the hat around here <laughs> in Salis on the salisbury plane here wow um yeah so so this guy stands up and says hey let's do this but maybe there's somebody else who stands up and says yeah but the, we should stay true to our ancestors too so actually bang out a, a plan that's unique. Stonehenge is not actually a, officially a hinge because it has the bank around it. It has the ditch inside it, but it also has a ditch outside it. So it's got a ditch on both sides. So okay, I, th I think I just figured out the secret of Stonehenge. Yeah, the reason that? that they did this is okay. just because they, they wanted to make sure that you just cannot come to church drunk. <laughs> you know, like, like you're coming to the old stone circle to, to <laughs> worship and you're a little hungover or a little tipsy and you're just i mean there's a, a ditch to go on the outside and you climb it <laughs> over a berm and then there's another ditch you fall into you just can't win <laughs> you you can you can though legitimately tell your children when i was young it was uphill both ways it was uphill. <laughs> <laughs> It would actually be the opposite because the old guy would be like, well, when I was young, it was only uphill one way. And the new guys are like, oh, we got it both ways. This yeah, is great. Right. Yeah. 
God. Yeah. Okay. So so we're gonna we're gonna do this this new kind of earthwork here, and this is Stonehenge one, the first phase of Stonehenge. And then, um, according to Burl, and there's but like it has no stones at this point. Right. This okay. is not even a stone thing. It's just an earthy henge. It's thing. an earthy hengey thing. That's not quite a henge, right. but like a henge. Right. Right. And then it depends who you read, but Burl thinks that also part of this was putting up um, a, a timber roundhouse, uh, which Ooh. is actually in the style of our traditional houses. We used to have rectangular houses, but in the last several centuries, it changed to sort of a conical roundhouse. Yeah. Um, and some of these were huge, yeah. like 40 meters, meters across, and open in the center with kind of like an atrium. Can we so just put have... it in feet? Because 40 doesn't sound that big. We're talking about 125 feet across. Uh, okay. Right? Yeah, well, yeah. so 40 times 3, basically. Plus yeah, 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 yeah. Plus some okay. change. Yeah. yeah, so something like that. Yeah, right. right. Um, so he thinks that they put one of these here. Uh, but instead of using it for a multi-purpose thing like a, hand, like a causeway enclosure, we're, this time we're just going to use it for astronomical things Ooh. and and as the charnel house where we uh, put the bodies when they're as they're decaying right and then we're going to get them later and bury them right okay yeah and they found lots of burials in fact underneath all these post holes called aubrey holes hmm. and i'm not really clear if that's actually supposed to be the pillars of this charnel house oh. or for something else later right. or if there are phases of it i don't know it's hard hard for me to decipher right yeah so that's that's the original basic blueprint of, of Stonehenge. You got this like kind of ring of earthwork stuff around, and then this timber charnel house on the inside. It's be using for for ancestral tradition purposes um, related to you know death and funerary stuff and stuff like that. And then it's also um, being used for kind of astronomical observations. And there's like sight lines. I, I think it's with like the portal stones that mm. were also part of this. Um, not so very many of them stones. yet. There are portal okay. stones on the way leading up to this place. Oh, got it. That's my interpretation. And it must be sight lines along with those stones that, right. that have some kind of astronomical So portal stones meaning it's essentially stones that are by the entrance. Yeah. Kind of like, like a line of stones coming toward the yeah, main entrance. Yeah. Like if you imagine going into a Shinto temple, how it's got the gate. So instead of having like the Tori gate, you'd have... Um, like stones kind of sort of like that right yeah so yeah that's the basic thing so so he's standing up and he's proposing this what what are the questions that you have as he's saying this i mean you're, you're like what <laughs> dude <laughs> what <laughs> one more sign please i think i would be doing some math on the back of my well, we don't have envelopes back then but on the back of like my hand or something uh, at the back of your just like skin. how many yeah. antlers how many hours of, of digging how many how, how is what's this gonna cost us yeah yeah oh it's the I, eternal question in public spending is like how many sheep is this gonna cost us yeah 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 okay perfect because i actually have this here i have this here in terms of man hours right here okay so for this phase um scholars estimate about eleven thousand man hours which sounds like a freaking big number, right? Right, right. But actually, you break this down, and um, if our village spares a team of 100 workers mm -hmm. working 10-hour days, Oof. then we can actually pound that out in 11 days. What? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you, di divide the yeah. Man, if you divide the man hours by 100 people right. um, working 10-hour days, it's like 11 days. Right. 
So it's actually not that not, yeah. dramatic of but an undertaking I'm assuming at this that point. With the size of the society not being a huge nation, and with the fact that they also have to like have food growing and other work, they right. they couldn't do that, right? They were right. working over a much longer period. Well, maybe you know, it, it, for eleven days, can you spare people? You probably could spare suppose, yeah. people. Like you probably summer, spare a lot more than that for eleven days. Harvest. Yeah, okay. yeah. But even but even if it was just one worker. Um, he could do it in a thousand one hundred days, which is about three years. They nominate this one guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like you like the you're the only one who voted for it. You're the one you're up there. Do it. You're the one up there playing your your <laughs> antler flute. <laughs> That's true. You do it. I'm gonna train my dogs to do this now too. Okay. Oh man. All right. So we build this thing, right? And and I imagine us, you know, high fiving each other, like feeling really pumped because now we've got like our own unique place to call our own. Right. Screw that causeway enclosure. Right. We we've now we've got our new thing that's expressing our new like community identity. Right. And everybody who comes can see, look, like we're doing something totally unique and different and this is us. So that's gotta get some serious cred. Yeah, in, right. In ancient Britain. Right. Yeah. You know, we decided to do this, you know? It it was it's a little it's <laughs> a little more involved in the community garden. Do you think do you think there were like People from other tribes are kind of snooping around, like, what are they up to? Like, taking <laughs> notes, you know, like, oh, we could build one of these. Oh, we'll build ours bigger and better. <laughs> yeah, I bet there were. I bet there were. Yeah. Okay, so that was St Stonehenge 1, the first phase. Okay, that was 3100 BCE. Now we're going to fast forward many, many generations. Okay. okay. We're going to go now to 2200 BCE. So that's like 900 years. Yes. So that's... A difference in years, if we count back 900 years from the present now, right. in 2016, so if you count 900 years back from there, that would be, um, that's like 1100 yeah. AD, right? 1116, so if you want to be precise. Yeah, 1116, yeah. so that's, that's going to be like kind of high Middle Ages-ish? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, so about that far back in time. The Magna Carta hasn't even been invented yet. Yeah. So, so if you imagine this... Um, Wood and earthwork thing has been used in uh, ceremonies and whatnot, and funerary rituals and astronomical observations, um, and more like celebrations of the astronomical observations rather than taking the observations. Right. But but you know, seeing the sunrise, um, you know, on the midwinter solstice or midsummer solstice, come just over a certain point that's marked, right? Wow. That kind of a thing. Yeah. For for nine hundred years, and now we're going to get in our idea in our heads. Let's change it all. But wait, so over that nine hundred years, did they? I mean, I realize they'd have to like kind of change the roofing, you know, change the thatch on the roof. But like, was there basically a wooden roundhouse in Stonehenge for that whole nine hundred years? Not clear. Bur Burl thinks that at some point um, they didn't really need the full house anymore, and might have just had just yeah. the timber frames, like wooden pillars, essentially. Yeah, the wooden oh, with like the top posts. Part. And then like a lintel, which right. apparently is how you would kind of structure it to support the roof. Yep. And there, we're starting to see the actual design that right. looks something like the Stonehenge the we have today. The same design as Stonehenge, but just made out of logs. Right. Like oh, the yeah. two uprights with the horizontal connecting them, All the way but made out of timber at this right. point. Cool. Yeah. And continually being replaced because timber rots, right? Right. Um, well, which... we're getting bored with that. Just, just like we got bored with the causeway enclosure. Right. Maybe. Okay. So 2200 BCE, this is the late Neolithic or even the Chalcolithic, which means that it's starting to get to be the copper age. That's We're starting right. at copper and gold right. now, right? Okay. But um, the way Burl describes it, and I'm going to go with this because it's cool for the narrative, we don't have it yet. Okay. Okay. Great. But a new people arrives oh, no. on the scene. Yes. And from our perspective, they're coming from that place 
that mountainous place over in Wales okay. that I was mentioned earlier. Okay, it's particularly an area in there called the Priscelli Hills. Remember mm -hmm. that word, Priscelli Hills. And do these guys just have all the natural minerals, and that's why they have uh, copper and gold? Um, well, actually, that's why that they have gone to those hills. Uh, We're talking about what scholars call the beaker people, which is, they're called that because they are found with these fantastic pots. It's the dumbest name. With. It's the dumbest name ever. Like, I, I feel like some archaeologists screwed up. It's like, <laughs> here's, a, here's a culture known for its beautiful pottery. Yeah. Beautiful pottery. We're going to call them the beaker people. The beaker people, which succeeded from the Dr. Bunsenberg exactly. people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's all I can picture. Yeah. No, but these are pretty amazing pots. Okay. And I'm going to get into it in just a second. Right. But, okay, they're here. They're actually coming from the continent. But they're here because they're kind of, it seems to be a maritime people, maybe originally starting on the coast of Portugal, but they're kind of looking for the metals um, for this new kind of metalwork that is just emerging, right? So they're, they're and, and in the terms of the British Isles, or as the Irish would call them, these isles, um, they're finding it in, in Wales, in Ireland, in Cornwall. Um, and, and so we're finding copper um, and gold and things like that. And they're also looking for, for flint, um, two, we've been using forever, but there's different varieties of flint to further purposes, Ooh. right? Um, so they've set up shop in Wales. And so from our perspective, they're coming from Wales. Oh, they're like the people of this Priscilla Hills area, right? Okay. And they have a totally different way of life. Here's what you were asking about horses. Yes. They got ponies. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> they're riding around on ponies. That must freak us out a little bit. Yeah. Even though to us, it's like, wait a minute, what? Ponies? But... We're talking about, like, this would look like a freaking centaur coming at you, right? It's <laughs> right. <laughs> a man riding an animal, um, and, yeah. And to be clear, that you know, just for anybody picturing this at home, this is before stirrups. Yes. This is before any, I don't even know if they had saddles. Do they have saddles? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's no complex equipment here. So right. it's really like a guy holding on with his thighs and his hands for dear yeah. life on a horse, which is still pretty impressive. Yeah, they got ponies, they got short bows. Which actually, in this case, we got, or have had the upper hand, because it's actually just a tiny little tangent. They've actually found these old British Neolithic longbows that were like five feet tall, wow. made out of you, just like the longbowmen in the Middle Ages. Right. Um, but, and then I guess it just went away. I don't know. I personally prefer a sling. Okay. To your, All right. Your so you longbows and you short bows. Sling. All right. <laughs> but anyway, they're coming in with a short bow, and they got the ponies. They might even be... Learn, have learned to kind of fire the bows from yeah. the pony back. That like, makes sense uh, short maybe. Yeah. Who knows? And they've also they've got like copper knives, which you've, we've never seen before. They've got gold um, kind of sun discs ornamenting them. So they speculate maybe they had kind of a solar cult thing going on. Ooh. And they had these pots. And like I said, these are some pretty amazing freaking pots. Okay. So I've got a little like quote here about these pots. Um, this is from Aubrey Burrow. These were tall, slim pots, large enough to hold a quart, and with a lip thin enough to be used for drinking. Many of them had a bright sealing wax finish attained by the careful choice of clay and by wet burnishing the coil-built body before firing. They must, in Clark's words, which is another archaeologist, um, have glowed like burnished copper in the firelight. Neat, horizontal bands of triangles impressed with a sharp-toothed comb one to two inches or 26 to 48 millimeters long lattice patterns and ladder motifs surrounded the body and often a ring of triangles like flames 
ornamented the base. Ornamenting the base, yes. That sounds beautiful. So, yeah, it sounds pretty beautiful. And what we've got is something called grooved wear. Okay. And we've thought that this was the shit forever, but then this is blowing us out of the water. Right. Here, here they we're come like, with their Pyrex, and we're like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And an interesting tidbit about these pots is one theory about these pots is they may have been used in some kind of um, hallucinogenic ritual. What? Yeah, because fly agaric was all over um, Britain, right? Which has... And what is fly agaric? It's a kind of mushroom. I think, cool. I think it's kind of like the one with kind of like red it's with the white red spots, white one, right? like the Smurfs, right? Yeah, yeah. and or Mario. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's hallucinogenic, right? And drawing an analogy to the peyote cult of the Americas, um, it could be that, you know, there's some kind of a hallucinogenic cult going on here. And a little property about um, some of these mushroom, hallucinogenic mushrooms is um, when you ingest them, they're highly toxic. But as they go through your kidneys and be, are filtered through your digestive system, it filters out a lot of the toxins, but leaves a lot of the hallucinogen in oh. your, your excreted urine. Okay. And oh. yeah, and there's like, <laughs> I, I, as I understand it, there are records of, of, from like Mongolia of, you know, this is actually done. Like somebody will take the mushrooms, pee it out. Other people will drink the pee and get a much nicer high. Wow. Yeah. So these pots wow. might have been, may have been used this way. The things maybe. people will do yeah. to get high in this world. So they've got these awesome piss pots, right? <laughs> 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 and they're blowing us out of the water. Right. And they've got this solar cult, and they're coming from the Purcelli Hills that are associated with these blue stones that are up there, right? Um, so these people come on the scene, and we're thinking... What what are we thinking here? What what would you think as as is happening? I mean, I'd want to know how many short bows I have to trade to get one of those pots. Yeah, right, you know? right. I mean, I'd be a little weirded out the first time they try to trade me like a, a pint of their own urine. <laughs> yeah, right. I wouldn't immediately see the value of that as a trade good. Yeah, I keep an open mind. Yeah, you know, right. So, <laughs> so what Burl thinks is that basically our people were just pretty much overawed by this new culture, who's technologically more advanced. They've got a different kind of um, religious ideology going on and and even though there probably weren't very many of them compared to us um, that they kind of like managed to manage to establish some Ooh. cultural dominance here and so the phase two of Stonehenge is where we see the timber structure um, which is the, the posts with the lintels made out of wood being replaced basically the same thing but in stone oh cool yeah yeah, so we've got now we've got a stone circle actually here. So do you think that our people basically just looked at these um, these piss pot guys and mm -hmm. then we were like, well, if they've got cool stones, we need cool stones. Um. Uh. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, okay. that's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. And not only that, but we're getting the stones. Uh, these are the blue stones. Okay. Right. These are the blue stones. They're smaller than the really big ones that you think of in at Stonehenge. But um, they're the coolest stones, in my opinion, because they come all the way from frickin' Wales, right. from the Purcelli Hills. And this has actually been um, proven at this point. They did chemical analyses of the stones at Stonehenge and the ones at this site in Wales. They've even pinpointed it to a place called um, Craig Rossi Fellin. Wow. I, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but um, yeah, so... Um, and the big marvel is, like, how did they get the stones all the way? I mean, it's a distance, depending on what route you take, of as much as 160 miles. I would definitely take the shortest route. It, well, the, <laughs> the shortest route is mostly overland. The oh. longest route is over sea. 
Yeah. And then with a little bit of trucking overland. So <laughs> just, a little, yeah. just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so when you say that they, they use these blue stones to kind of replace the, the posts that yeah. have been around Stonehenge, the wooden yeah. posts, did they, because nowadays the blue stones at Stonehenge don't have any, any uh, lintels on top, do they? Uh, the blue stones, no. But at the time, are you saying they did because they replaced the wooden posts that had lintels? That's the part that I'm not completely clear on. Okay. Burl is a little bit frustrating for me because like, you get these details, but then you come up with your own questions and the answer is nowhere to be found. Right, right, right yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely an outer um, circle uh, that's just inside the earthwork um, structure. Got the it. earthwork rings, right? Got it. And also these blue stones are going to be removed later and put back kind of ha haphazardly in a different pattern. So it's all a lot of conjecture. It's a little really. remodeling. Yeah. 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 Um, but the big thing is like, how did they get them there? Right? And um, another theory is that, uh, this has put, been put forward recently, is that long, 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 long ago, the stones were broken off from the Priscilla Hills naturally by glaciers and then brought um, by glaciers closer to our area and then we just found them there, and we're able to kind of truck them in with a little um, kind of elbow grease. Got it. Which is actually not that hard to do. There's also a, a study done recently where um, uh, some grad students um, wanted to see how many people it would take to move a big, like, Stonehenge-sized stone um, with using nothing but a wooden sledge and, like, a timber trackway, sort of like logs laid horizontally, and you're going to roll, roll it along there. And it was. It only took about. It took ten people to move a half-size Stonehenge stone at a rate of about one mile per hour. So they estimate about twenty people could do a full-size Stonehenge stone. So it can be done. And then the other thing is like, how did they get them these big stones into the ground, right? And then there's a, a YouTube video that you showed me. Yes. Right. I'd seen this before, but this is awesome. Yeah. Right. A guy named Wally Wallington, which is the awesomest name, name ever, yes. right? Okay, so how does he do it? Oh, Jesus. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he levitates him. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, I mean, if I remember correctly, it's just leverage. I mean, yeah. so in this video, he takes... It's one guy doing it's it. one person. Yeah. So if you can picture the stone, the size of the stones at Stonehenge, and one single person on their own with no modern equipment, uh, putting it into an upright position, well, that's what he did. It's just a matter of leverage. You know, you get a big enough lever where, you know, if even if you're one person, if the lever is long enough, you have enough leverage to kind of pry up one end of the stone and you just slip something underneath it. So that ends a little higher up. And yeah, you go the other end and pry that end up and then you can just keep doing it till it's up where you want it. Yeah. And then let it kind of drop in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it just kind of slides into the hole once it's up. Right. Yeah. And I think there's some kind of um, stone bearings involved in there at some point too. Yeah. He would yeah. put like essentially like a, like a fulcrum underneath the stone so that one person can just like push the stone and it just rotates. You see mm -hmm. him just like turning these giant yeah. stones. And I, I mean, I think we should just put the link to the video on, you know, the show notes yeah. or something. But. Yeah. It's actually, it's on YouTube and it's just a, like a really blase name. I think it's like man moves huge blocks yes. or something yeah, like it's that. Really... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so this is, um, 350,000 man hours to do this phase here. And that works out to, if we're doing the 100 workers thing for about 10 hour it's days. Worked, it's worked this long, so why not? Yeah. Now we're talking um, labor of about 360 days or about one year um, for our 100 person team. Right. And probably we're more lazy than that, so it probably Over take twice. Years. Yeah. 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 Uh, but still, it's still, it's, still, it's actually yeah, doable. 
It's yeah. more than it's it's more doable than you ever would have thought. And that's the thing is when people look at Stonehenge and the size of these stones, or even if you just read the numbers, how many tons they weigh, uh -huh. the first thought you have is, well, nobody could have moved that without uh, you know modern equipment. This right. is too big. Yeah. But then when you so you that's look why it's at, aliens, right? Exactly. It's got to be aliens. It's got to be something else. And it, it it's not. It is when you look at the math. You know, they have the ability to do it. One guy can put the stone up into place. You can roll the stones on lobs. Yep. You have a small team of people. And one year of dedicated work, a huge team could do it. Or, yep. you know, I mean, cathedrals took sometimes 70 years to build. So if they were willing to spread this over 70 years of work, yep. it's like a summer project. Everybody, yep. You do a one-week internship moving stones. Yeah, and in fact, the math for this uh, phase works out to, if you have just one guy working on it, it'd be about 100 years. Right. So probably like a couple people, you know, succeeding him, maybe right. his child and grandchild or whatever, but right. 100 years. You can do it. Yeah. We can do it. We should <laughs> we, we do should. it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, uh, guys, we're, we're running out of time, but we kind of, we got to, we got to go super quick through into the last and final phase. Okay. So Stonehenge 3 is where we finally get the big trilithons that we all think of as the iconic Stonehenge. This is the Stonehenge you've been waiting for. Right. Yeah. This is this is the kind where where it's the dolmen that that right. Andre was describing at at the beginning, right? Okay. Yeah. This is the one you were waiting for, right? Okay. Um. So this is the the phase is we're we're going to now to two thousand BCE. Two thousand BCE. So it's been eleven hundred years since they started this process. Uh. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we're jumping. We were we were at twenty two hundred BCE, so now we're going two hundred years into the future. Oh, that's a much smaller at. jump. I like yeah. that you know they 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 spent a long time just with the wooden hut, uh -huh. and then once they put a couple stones in, they were like, you know, I really like this. Let's keep going with it. Yeah. And then a couple centuries later, they're building more stones. Yeah. 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 And there's there's other crazy stuff too, like the actual blue stone trilogy uh, uh, circle that we we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They got three fourths of the way done and then stopped. Oh. Yeah. And it was like, what? It, it, I don't know. And it, it, it maybe if they were taking a, their lazy time, mm -hmm. right, taking about 200 years, maybe they hadn't quite finished it and then this other phase came and they decided right. let's do something else. Yeah. So what happens here is now we're, now we're deep into the Bronze Age, the, the kind of deep early Bronze Age, if that makes any sense at all. Okay, 2000 okay. BCE, right? Um, the Beaker culture is now waning and we've got something coming up called the Wessex culture. And at this point, you know, we're exploiting copper, we're exploiting tin. Tin mining is freaking huge in Cornwall yeah. in this part because tin is, is much more rare than copper. You yes. have to kind of really look for tin. And why is tin important? Because you need to add tin to copper to make bronze. And you need a lot of tin to make weapon quality bronze. Yeah. You think of the Bronze Age, people using bronze swords and bronze yeah. spears. You needed, I think it's 12% of the alloy to be tin which is a lot of tin when it's that rare and you're digging it up by hand. So they were like fights over tin, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, fights is exactly where I'm going with this because now we are getting well and beyond the, the big man or, or the influential person level of village things. We're starting getting, getting into chiefs and even chiefs who owe their allegiance to, to even higher chiefs. At least that's what scholars speculate at this point, right? And we're getting... Um, militarism and violence and this Wessex culture is clearly about that because they find these dagger graves as they're they're called Ooh. in they're buried with these bronze daggers right That's so really it's cool. um yeah and, and you've got this emergence of a, a warrior um caste of society 
Um, and basically, uh, what we're talking about for, for this last phase of, phase of Stonehenge is basically power politics showing who could build the biggest, you know, stone monument here. That, that's what Burl boils it down to. But I love how it's not a phallic-shaped monument. It's actually a no. giant vaginal-shaped monument. Well, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, there you go. Hey. It's like a yonic monument. And it was like, who can build the biggest, coolest one? The biggest, coolest vagina. vagina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, so these things are built to impress. The big trilithons made out of sarsen stone, which comes from much closer than Marlboro Plains. It's only like 20 miles away or something, 20 to 30 miles away. Um, they're like, screw this blue, blue stone thing. We don't even care about the blue stones anymore. The bigger people they must pull have been them pissed out. when they lost that stone contract. Yeah. Like, oh, really? Like, Sarsen? It's not as good as blue stone? <laughs> they pull out the blue stones. Um, they put in these sarsen trilithons. They use the same awesome, um, you know, amazing engineering technology, which we got to doff our Neolithic caps to, our Bronze Age caps to now. Right. Um, but yeah, so they set those up and... They're built to impress because they even kind of screw up some of the sight lines of looking at certain, you know, astronomical phenomena. They just like build right halfway in the middle of it. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, this is power politics at this point. And right. that with that point is um, that's the Stonehenge that we know. So wow. we've got we've gone from kind of like a ring of earthworks with a charnel housey kind of thing that we use for um, funerary stuff and astronomical obs observations to the arrival of the Beaker people um, with uh, their blue stones that come from their like special area and, and um, are sort of immortalizing that, but in stone and maybe having something to do with their new solar cult, you know, that they're bringing in. Right. And then we move to the power politics of, of the militarism of, of the, the high bronze age. And that's, that's Stonehenge as we know it. After that, um, there's little kind of, attempts to kind of extend it a little bit but they always peter out and are never quite finished hmm. um and then by the iron age with the celts and the druids at that point like it's totally abandoned like, We're not doing that. they've forgotten um <laughs> or or if they haven't forgotten what the original reasons were they don't care about them anymore they've right. got their new thing that they're doing like you said they use them for their own purposes right um but at that point like they, it, they bought it secondhand gone. Yeah, you know, they, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and they like, got a big discount because all the labor was already done. They yeah, didn't like, have to build any stones. Yeah, like somebody know. built this special for their own like house, but then later had to pawn it off. And somebody comes in and says, hey, this will look good in my condo. Right. We're like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> <That's a heirloom>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Well, Andre, we got yes. to wrap this up because we're already over time here. Um, but thank you for being on the show and we're going to have you back on the next episode Excellent. Um, when we're going to be talking about how history looks at Stonehenge and tries to figure out what in the hell is going on so here. That's the show that has everything. We're talking aliens, Atlantis, <laughs> Druids, Giants in Ireland, yep, Merlin, everything, ley lines, energy, <laughs> everything. You actually pretty much hit on a lot of what I wanted to talk Stay about. Stay tuned, guys. That's right. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Andre, for being on the show. Be sure to check us out next time uh, for part two. And uh, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, write us in by email. And do you have a dead idea that you'd like us to explore? Because we want to hear it. So write us in. I'm BT Newberg, and this has been Dead Ideas. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Remember to show support for Dead Ideas. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It doesn't matter if you say that we suck, if you say that we have funny voices. Uh, the more downloads and reviews we get, the higher iTunes ranks us, so just be honest. 
And remember, if you're one of the first 20 people to review us on iTunes, you get yourself drawn as a comic book character in the historical time period and culture of your choosing. Yes, we're continuing that. We're still doing that. You can get it done for you, too. Anna and I will make you awesome. You can be a Canadian Mountie. You can be a Spartan warrior. You can be a washerwoman from the Crusades. Whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Just give us a review on iTunes and then email us a photo to work from at deadideaspod at gmail.com and we'll get it done for you. Uh, also visit us online at deadideas.net. Find us on social media at, at deadideaspod or email us at deadideaspod at gmail.com. Music and graphic design by Rachel Westoff. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>